Today we're going to be talking about the Reformation because it's important. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Reformation, why we're not all Catholic. I think that's an adequate subtitle because um, at the time of the Reformation, if you said that you were a part of the church or if you were a Christian, thank you, um, you were Catholic. The Catholic Church was the church. So let's get that in our minds. Um, one thing we need to, for us to really understand what we're talking about, we're going to have to really change our mindset because we're so locked into our culture and our context where, um, where you, uh, you go to a church and you have, there's about a million different denominations of Christian churches. And for the most part, for with you know what we would call evangelical denominations, you don't really believe that much different than um, some other ones. So like here we at camp we have probably there's probably five or six um, denominations that are represented here um, this week, and we're just preaching scripture, we're teaching the Bible, and everybody agrees on it. And there are some things we disagree on, so we just don't talk about them because they're, they're not real important. We would say that we're evangelical denominations. And evangelical comes from a, uh, the word in the New Testament that means the gospel. So we would say that we're centered around the gospel, right? Well, for you to understand what we're talking about today, we need to put ourselves in a completely different environment. I mean, 100% different environment. And one of the reasons why... I really want to do this breakout session is so that we can be thankful for the way that God has worked in human history, specifically in the church, so that we, um, we can live in the environment that we live in now where we can have a Bible that's written in the language that we read, that when a, when a pastor gets up and preaches, he's preaching in the language that we listen, that we understand, right? So we're listening to the language you understand, and that the Bible is actually being preached, now, you're probably thinking, okay, this is, uh, this is pretty common. Every church I go to, they speak in English and they teach the Bible. But that's what we have to wrap our minds around is that if you said that you were a Christian in the 1400s, you went to a church that when they read the Bible, it was in Latin, and they didn't preach the Bible you, that you didn't have that. You didn't have a Bible that you didn't take a Bible with you to church. You didn't have a Bible that you could go home with because a Bible in your language didn't exist. That's what I want, to, that's what I want us to wrap our minds around. And so with that in mind, let's just, let's pray to God and ask him to um, bless this time that we have and to help us to really love and appreciate the blessings that he's given to us. Uh, dear gracious heavenly father, thank you so much for these enormous blessings that we have not only spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and the salvation that you've given us, but the fact that we live in a, um, in a society in a time period where your word is so accessible to us, where solid scriptural teaching is so accessible to us. And God, I pray that you will convict us for where we take those things for granted and that we don't, we don't love and appreciate the work that you've done in our lives in even small practical ways. So as we look at the Reformation, I pray that we will be filled um, with a love for you and a love for your word and a love for the way that you have interacted with us in history. We love you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So um, I'm going to first let's, the, uh, the, re, the, um, the main things I want you to take away from this breakout session is in reality, I want you to love God more 
and love his scripture more and be filled with the desire to study his scripture so that you can know God better. And from that, so that you can know his word better and so that you can teach his word better so that we can be an effective witness of the gospel. All right, you're probably thinking that sounds really weird because it seems like you're talking about history. But this is, these are things we should learn from history. In fact, um, one of the things I'll, I really want to point out specifically at the end, but is that I feel like that we should have in our churches today, and you, specifically you, you need to have a type of reformational mindset where you will take everything that you hear in the church and you will um, you'll compare it to the word of God and so everything that you're taught everything that you hear you'll compare that to the word of God because God's word is um, the standard that we have to go by and if we if we stray from God's word then we're we're teaching heresy and we're not pleasing to God all right and so that's the context that we find ourselves in in the late 14 and late 1400s and what the, what I'm going to do real quick is I'll just I'll, let, I'll explain to you how I want to try to work this. I want to try to get you to understand the context of what it was like in that time period and the need for reformation that the entire world saw, that the need for the church to reform that everyone saw, the reasons for we needed to have reformation. And then I'm going to pause for a second and kind of backtrack to some things that led up to the reformation, both in world history and in the church. And then we're going to talk specifically, we're going to spend some time talking specifically about Martin Luther, who was pretty much every everybody today if you ask they'll say he was he spearheaded the reformation we'll talk about events surrounding his life specifically his conversion and then um, and then what happened after that after he protested because that's what we get protestant from is it's a protest against the um, the catholic church the way that he protested and then a couple other people that followed him and then we'll try to wrap it up saying okay how does this apply to our lives today all right so let's look right now <coughs> Let's look right now at the context of the church at the time. Now, I've already kind of explained it to you, but let me tell you this. This is, this is unbelievable that the church really turned into kind of a power-hungry institution where the, the Pope had this mindset. And there's, there's, to be honest, there's a slight bit of truth in everything that they're saying. But just because something has a slight bit of truth to it, that then it can still be perverted. It can still be contrary to Scripture. So what the Pope's main, uh, main idea was, was that, okay, um, God is above all, over all, right? We read that. Um, never mind, you weren't there. We read that this morning with our staff, but it's in the Bible. God is above all, over all, in all. Okay, sorry about that. My brain gets slow sometimes. I mix things up. Anyway, so that the Pope said this, that God is above all, right? And even though God has ordained for there to be governments and institutions and they're supposed to be in charge, you're supposed to submit to those governments, well, those governments are territorially bound, right? You know, you've got this, this, this nation. Well, okay, the king is in charge of that nation, but he doesn't have any jurisdiction in the next nation. So let's say specifically, like in, the, in Europe, this is where we're going to talk a lot about um, today, the Reformation, the, the way it started in Europe. There were different, you know, let, let's say, you know, there was a king, uh, there was a king of the Holy Roman Empire, right? You don't need to know that, but it's, okay. it's, it's true. There was a, the thing called the Holy Roman Empire. There was an emperor, and he had jurisdiction as far as the empire spread. But there are certain places like 
in, um, in, let's say, Spain or France that had their own governments. And so did, the, did the, the Holy Roman Empire, the emperor, did he have jurisdiction in Spain? No, he didn't. Now, this is what the Pope tried to say, is he said, yeah, but God is above all governments. And so all the kings, all the princes, all the emperors, they need to submit to God. And we would say, yeah, of course, absolutely. But then he would say, and I'm God's representative. So everyone needs to submit to me. Kings of every nation, princes, you guys need to send me money because you need to pay a tithe or a tribute to the church because the church is overall, and I mean, it got, it, I mean, got super political. You know, where, where, for instance, the Pope is the one who oftentimes was saying, okay, your king just died. Well, let me tell you who needs to be the king there because I'm speaking on behalf of God. And he would say this person needs to be the king because that person had paid him the most money. You see what I'm saying? And then not only did they try, was, were, was that happening as far as like um, the, the church becoming overly political? Because everyone realized at this time period, the church needed to reform, not even Christians, right? There were political considerations here that kings, uh, they were saying, we're not going to pay, we don't need to pay money to him. We don't need to pay money to the Pope. We don't need to pay money to the church. But then we, we also see that there, uh, that there needed, that, that one of the needs for the Reformation was there was, the, there was no spiritual leadership in the church anymore. In fact, the, the priests, and what, I'm, a lot of times I'm just going to say preachers because, you know, we're, we don't live in a Catholic environment. So it, to make it seem a little more um, understandable, I'm going to say like the preachers, you know, because that was, that's their function as well. So let's say these, these preachers of these different churches, um, they got their position as the, as the leader of the church often not because they were spiritually solid or because they knew the Bible or they could lead spiritually, but they would get those positions in the church because they'd paid off a lot of money. So you see the, the, the problem here? In fact, um, even the Pope, whoever became the Pope, they became the Pope because they had the most money to pay off the archbishops who elected them as the Pope. And in fact, we've got in, uh, in 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean yeah, in 1492, the guy, there, uh, there was a new pope. His name was Pope Alexander VI. And Pope Alexander VI became pope because he, he bought off all the votes that he needed to become pope. Even though he had, um, he had several mistresses and he had seven children. Okay, now, if you're not super familiar with Catholic teaching, priests had to be celibate. They weren't allowed to have sex. They weren't allowed to get married priest couldn't do that. But this guy, the leader of all the priests, the best priest out there, right? He had several mistresses and seven kids. And you're thinking, okay, something's got to change, right? This guy is not even following the rules that he's imposing on all the other preachers. So something's got to change. So there were spiritual, spiritual need, uh, spiritual leadership that need to take place. There's political reasons that they need to have a reformation. And then there was theological reasons. And this is what we're going to talk about today because the church had, had lost its theological grounding. The church was no longer teaching things that came from the Bible. And this is, this, is the, this is the most important point that we need to talk, we're going to talk about today as far as why the Reformation needed to take place. And so picture this. Picture you're in church, right? You go to church. And you go to church, and you're sitting in the pew, and the preacher gets up there, and he starts just reading off a bunch of babble in Latin. 
and let's say you don't speak Latin. And so he gets up there and he says, this is the word of God. Then what are you going to do? You're going to say, I mean, if, you're a, if you care about having a relationship with God, then if this guy who knows Latin, if he gets up here and reads something, and then he says, okay, let me tell you what this means for you and for your salvation, man, I'm going to hang on every word he says, right? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm like that a lot of times when people are preaching out of the Bible, and they're like, okay, this is God's word, and they start to explain the word, God's word, and I'm like, okay, teach me. I want to learn this. Well, I mean, imagine what it would be like even if, if you didn't even understand what he'd read that he was explaining. You'd have to listen all the more intently, and you'd have to put more and more faith in him to interpret it properly. You see what I'm saying? But look at this. Now, keep in mind that we had the, 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 the preachers, the priests, the bishops, the pope. These people weren't following the Lord. They weren't growing in their knowledge of God. And so they're not teaching what the Bible really says. They're not good spiritual leaders. But the, but the people are having to trust in them to know, to know how to have a relationship with God. I mean, it's, it's jacked up completely because they, the, the priests, even in the smaller sense, they wanted to have power over their people, over their congregation. And they had all of the power in the world. Because imagine if I said, okay, this book right here, this has the secrets to how you can have a relationship with God, how you can have salvation. You're going to be like, oh, man, let me see that. I'm like, oh, no, 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 Sorry. You can't look at it. You're just going to have to trust me. You have to listen to what I say. And whatever I say, you got to do. Okay, so you're going to do it. So what if they said something like, okay, well, you know, in reality, um, you've heard it taught that when you die, you either go to heaven or hell. Well, that's not really true. In fact, there's this other place that you might go. Well, and and I, for the most part, like specifically later on before the Reformation, everybody... When you died, you couldn't, you couldn't go to heaven. You had to first go to purgatory. All right? And so you're like, well, what's purgatory? And they say, oh, well, purgatory is this place where, you know, you're in limbo. You're not in heaven. You're not in hell. But you've got to, you, have, you died with unconfessed sin. And since you died without confessing those sins, for every one of those sins that you hadn't confessed, you've got to pay off in purgatory. And you pay it off by spending there for years and years and years. Oh, man, that stinks. I hope I don't die. I don't want to have to spend, spend all this time in purgatory. Oh, well, there's an, here's, let me tell you this. You can get out of, you know, a lot of purgatory. That'd be awesome, right? Okay, cool. I want to get out of purgatory. What do I need to do? Well, there's a couple prayers you need to pray over and over. All right, good. I can do that. Pray over and over. Um, here's some more things. Like, for instance, um, you know, 100 miles from here, there's a church, and in the church, there's a relic. A relic is like some sort of like little knickknack that has some kind of spiritual significance. This is, I mean, this is what priests would tell people. I'm not making any of this up. They would say, you need to go to this city, and you need to crawl up the steps of the church on your hands and knees, and then crawl all the way to the back of the church, and there's going to be a little piece of wood, and this was off the cross of Jesus. And you need to go find that piece of wood. You need to kiss it. And then you can crawl back down the steps and you can come home. And if you do that, that'll take 500 years off of purgatory. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to do it, right? What if they even said, you know, this isn't even necessary to get out of purgatory. I mean, if you, ever, if you ever want a chance to go to heaven, if you ever want a chance to have salvation, you've got to do these things. 
man, you would do it. Absolutely. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, wh- how horrible would that be? What if your pastor got up and said, now, you know, it's in the Bible I'm, and uh, that it says that you have to do these things. You have to, you know, there's a bunch, there's seven different things you have to do every one of these things. You have to confess your sin to me personally, and I have the power to forgive you of your sins. And if you die without those sins forgiven, then you're going to spend this much time in purgatory. Well, you would do everything that they said. Why? Because they have the power over you. They're speaking as God. They're speaking on behalf of God. And then it got even worse. Um, the, the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, specifically for Luther, was, um, I don't know which year. I think I have it somewhere. Sometime there was this one time in history when this one guy whose name was Pope Leo X. Yeah, I don't have the date. Pope Leo X, he commissioned all of his um, bishops and priests um, with this, with a building fund, basically. He wanted to build a really big church, which turns out to be St. Peter's Basilica. And to raise money for his building fund, he said, let's make a special type of penance. Penance is like trying to pay off your sins so you don't go spend too much time in purgatory. He said, let's have a special type of penance where you can buy your way out of purgatory completely. We'll call them an indulgence. And you can buy an indulgence for a certain amount of money, and you're ensuring that you spend zero time in purgatory. You go straight to heaven. Now, what if someone told you, and you believed, you know, you've, you've had this mindset that whenever you die, you have to, like, first off, in your life, you have to do all these different works. You have to do all these different things for, to have salvation. And then you think also that when you die, there's more time you have to spend to get salvation. And someone said, okay, all of that, forget it all. I tell you what, you want to take care of all the works in this life and take care of all purgatory? Let me sell you an indulgence. For $1,000, it's a get-out-of-hell-free card. You know, what would you do? If you believe this was God's man, that this was God's word to you, you'd do it. You'd pay $1,000. Absolutely, I would. Because then, in reality, now, you can do whatever you want in this life. Because when you die, you're going to heaven. You bought an indulgence. You've got, your, you've got your ticket, you know. And then they said, what if they said, okay, we know we're not making enough money this way. Let's see. How about your granddaddy? And you think your granddaddy's probably in purgatory right now. And you have the power for another $1,000 to buy him out of purgatory also. Do you not love your granddaddy? You know? Yeah, of course I do. Give me $1,000. I mean, it got to the point with this guy. His name was John Tetzel. He would rock around, and like he was like the best door-to-door salesman ever. And he was selling, you know, salvation in the form of indulgences. And he even made up like ad jingles. One of them was like, every time a coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. Huh? That'll sell, man. That's awesome. We should try doing that now. Build another really big church. Um, and so, like, think about this. I mean, this is, the, this is the environment, right? In fact, this is what I want to look at. Before, before the actual Reformation we'll talk about, so this started in the early 1500s, there was a guy in, um, in England, you guys have probably heard of his name, is Wycliffe, John Wycliffe. You've heard of Wycliffe Bible Translators, maybe. If you haven't, you should. It's a really uh, fantastic ministry. This guy named John Wycliffe, he was born in the early 1300s, maybe 1330, and he became um, 
he became a believer and was a professor at Oxford. He was like, I mean, he was, he was like um, the smartest guy in England in his lifetime. And he started realizing that the church, I mean, this is 150 years before the, like the Reformation. He realized the church was, you know, had too much power. And so, and he was studying the Bible. He's like, this isn't anywhere in the Bible. The church shouldn't be able to have this type of authority. And he talked to the king and he's like, look, you don't need to pay. Um, you don't need to keep paying the Pope because what he's doing isn't, it's not in the Bible. It's not. And I mean, because he read Latin, which is helpful, you know, that was really good because he knew the Bible. In fact, what's crazy is he cared so much about people knowing the Bible is that he translated the Bible into English in 1382. Yeah, in 1382, he translated the Bible into English. This is awesome. This is never, this is, this is the first time this has happened. This is fantastic. And so he starts preaching the Bible because, and, and, and it's in a language that people can understand. And this is fantastic. And even, this is crazy to me. Um, after he died, he died in uh, 1382. And um, about 25 years later, the, the church, the Catholic church, gets together and they say this. And this is like, I'm reading an abbreviated quotation. It says, it is dangerous to translate the text of Holy Scripture. Huh. It's dangerous to translate the text of Holy Scripture? It says, we decree and ordain that no one shall in the future translate on his authority any text of Scripture into the English tongue or to any other tongue by way of a book, a booklet, or treatise, nor shall any man read in public or in private this kind of book booklet, or treaties, now recently composed in the time of the said John Wycliffe on the penalty of the greater excommunication. Okay, this is the church, and they get together in 1408, and they decide no one's allowed to read the Bible in their language. All right, this, this is why the church needed to be reformed. You see this? And Wycliffe started this reformation, and, but he got shut down. He got stopped dead in his tracks. There's some people that followed him, and, uh, and then one guy specifically that kind of followed him and kind of carried along a little further. But, I mean, they, they stopped him so hard that, like, um, after, he death, after his death, about 40 years after his death, they, the, the Pope decreed that his, his bones had to be dug up out of the ground and then burned in public to say, okay, this is what happens to people who go against us. Okay, that's scary. People got scared with that. Um, one thing that was really providential is that the king of England at that time is a guy named Richard II. Um, he married this girl who was the um, kind of the princess, the daughter of the emperor, the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, Holy Roman Empire, and um, her name was Anne. And um, so she spent a lot of time in England. Okay, now um, she's from. Uh, uh, where, where would modern day uh, the Czech Republic is now? But back then it was called Bohemia, which is just a way better name for a nation. I would much rather be from Bohemia than the Czech Republic, which kind of sounds boring. But um, so she would go spend a lot of time in England, in London, where John Wycliffe was. And um, and she and so then they would start. They started kind of trading back and forth. Scholars, people from London, would go study in Prague, which was the capital of Bohemia at the time, and they would go back and forth. And so the Reformation that was started there moved to Prague, where under and a guy named John Huss really started to lead that. And then John Huss also, I mean, he got he got 
he got he got stopped short as well. He they had the Bible in English, and uh, they were they were teaching English, but they were they understood English more than they understood Latin, and so they're even preaching in their own language from the English Scripture, which is really fantastic. And then with him. He was, he was martyred on uh, July 6, 1914. He was condemned, and, uh, condemned to death and taken to the outskirts of the city and was burned. And now listen to this. This is awesome. Um, he, and this is once an abbreviation of his prayer also. He says, O most holy Christ. This is while he's being burned, okay? Um, o most holy Christ, strengthen my spirit. Give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love, that for thy sake I may lay down my life with patience and joy. And then when he, when he got to the execution ground, he knelt and prayed, God is my witness um, that the evidence against me is false. I've never thought or preached except the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. In the truth of the gospel I have written, taught, and preached, today I will gladly die. I mean, wow. And I want you to think about this. Like, I want you to think about what it's taken for you to have Scripture in your language and for the truth of the Christian faith to be preserved to us in our time. I mean, people are killed daily, even today, for believing in Jesus. People have, the, the, the Bible that you have is soaked in the blood of people who have fought to have an English translation of the Bible. Um, um, Wycliffe, his followers were called the Lollards and they were, I mean, they were tracked down and executed because they were continuing to pass out Bibles in English. All right. I want you to understand that. I mean, some of you and I, me included have half a dozen Bibles. I mean, half a dozen. We've got, oh, we've got a big one. We've got a small one. We've got a study one. Okay. You know, we've got seven different translations. And this, you have this, the, the very fact that you have this, that you were born in a period of, of history where you have this is a gift from God. All right? I want you to understand that. That's huge. Because this is, this is God's word to you. And we'll say, okay, so specifically, let me move from that into talking about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, um, he, uh, he was born in the late 1400s, and... Um, and he was, he was kind of being groomed to be a lawyer. And then one day when he was coming home from school, I think, or from work somewhere, he was on his way home, and uh, there was a, a really bad lightning storm. And so he prayed out to Queen, or not to Queen, to, um, to St. Anne. Because another thing that the Catholic Church had morphed into this time was praying to saints. Um, to, and, and, um, and so he prayed to St. Anne and said, if you deliver me, then I'll become a monk. And uh, so the lightning scared him, and he made it home. And so he said, well, I'm going to become a monk. So he became a monk. In fact, he says he became the best monk. You know, he devoted himself to it. And then and he studied the Bible. He wound up getting like a master's degree in the Bible and then a doctorate degree in the Bible, which, I mean, is really hard to do. I mean, at this time, um, you keep in mind, in, in world history, this is, this is on the, t- the tail end of the Renaissance, where there had been like a revival in learning. And so um, the academic world had, had brought out the Greek again. They'd brought out um, Greek philosophers. And in so doing, they brought out the Greek New Testament, because the Bible was written in Greek. And so people started studying the Bible in its original languages again, both in Greek and in Hebrew. This is awesome. This is part of God's sovereignty 
uncertainty in, in the Reformation taking place at this time. Because not only, and this is just real quick, not only in world history had people had a revival in learning, but also the invention of the printing press in Europe was humongous. Because now there's a way that, that you can spread information faster and quicker with the printing press. Okay, so this is happening in Martin Luther's lifetime. Okay, and so, and then Luther, he gets a, he gets his PhD in the Bible. And keep in mind, at this time, he is not a Christian. He became, he's a monk, and he has a, a doctor degree in the Bible, but is not a Christian. Do you see that? Because that's, that's just what they did. Even in this, even in their society, you know, where monks all too often, they could quote huge portions of the Bible, but they weren't true believers because the, the salvation had become, the teaching of salvation had become just a works-based salvation. Do these things and you'll be saved. And then there's one time Martin Luther is studying the Bible, and he'd already like taught through the Psalms, you know, and he's taught through um, different uh, places in the New Testament. He's teaching people how to study the Bible. And uh, he comes across in Psalms where it talks about the righteousness of God. And, um, and he was scared by it because in his mind, he saw the righteousness of God. Meant, this, is, this means God is perfect. You know, God is perfect. God is holy. But he also had studied enough um, to realize that from Scripture and in the early church um, writers, the, the church fathers, specifically Augustine, he'd been studying Augustine, and Augustine was really clear on the fact that God is holy and we are not holy. And since we're not holy, you can't, you can't attain the righteousness of God on your own. And so when he saw the righteousness of God, it scared, it scared him to death. In fact, in it you read, he wrote a um, kind of an autobiographical preface to the book of the Psalms. And in it, he talks about how terrified he was of the righteousness of God. He said, in fact, I didn't love the, the righteousness of God. I hated it. I mean, he's a monk, right? And he says that I hated the righteousness of God and I hated God. Think about this. This is, this is how corrupt the church had gotten, all right? And so he's, he's like, I want to find out everything I can about the righteousness of God. And he gets to Romans. And in Romans, he's reading, in this Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read just two verses. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he got to this point and he was just so confused. Because gospel, in the Greek, the gospel, the word we translate gospel, it really means a good message or the good news. And so he's so confused because he's like, how can this be good news? The righteousness of God is not good news. It's the righteousness of, de- righteousness of God that condemns me because he's holy and I am not. And I'm, I can't be holy. I can't be righteous like he is. And so he's, this is where like he said he despised God because God was saying that this is good news when it wasn't good news. This was horrible because it was, it was pointing out the fact that he could never be righteous like God. And then he realized, from reading this, he realized that the good news is that this, this righteousness is of God, from God, and is revealed from faith, and is revealed in faith, and that it's not something that you can work to do, but that, it's a, that even this faith is a gift from God that he has given you. And he says, at that moment, when he became a believer, he says, it's like the doors of paradise were open to me. 
And so my question, I mean, when I think through this, I'm like, well, what, what is it that possessed this man that, that changed the world? What is it that changed the world? And I would say Scripture. What changed the church? What caused the Reformation? Scripture, a right understanding of Scripture. And this is where we need to be completely practical in our lives, that we need to have a right understanding of Scripture. And we have been given all the tools necessary to have a right understanding of Scripture. So then just to follow Martin Luther's life real quick, and then uh, we'll, I'll try to wrap this up. Um, he, um, when... Uh, when, when the, the sale of indulgences was, was getting real popular, he opposed it. And he said, and basically the 95, you know, he wrote 95 theses. You guys have heard that. And on, on Halloween day in 1517, he nailed 95 theses, which is just 95 points that, um, 95 points that, um, went against the practice of selling indulgences. He actually said these are, it's for the abuses of indulgences. Because at, at his core, Luther wasn't interested in starting a reformation. Luther was interested in trying to purify the church. He, and so he said, you know, we need to, there's some things we have to change. These, um, these indulgences, these are wrong. The, the Pope is abusing his power, and we need to make sure that we have proper theology back in our church. But, it, I mean, it's, he, he stirred up a hornet's nest when he did this because he did that, and then it started spreading that he was, that, that he was going against the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church, um, a, uh, the Catholic Church then told him he needed to come um, for a trial. And they sent out something that's called a papal bull, which is really weird to me because it's not, it's not actually a bull, like a male cow. It's just a... Um, piece of paper from the Pope. So he got this piece of paper from the Pope that said you need to come because they were going uh, to put him on trial and excommunicate him. And uh, he took that bull, which again is a piece of paper, and he went in front of everybody in Wittenberg and he burned it in front of everybody as if to say um, the Pope has no authority over us. When that's powerful. And when that happened, then they finally did get him to come to a place called Worms, which is funny. Um, or in German, they pronounce it Worms. And, um, and that's where they, they put him on trial and they said, okay, you need, to, um, you need to stop teaching what you're teaching because it's going against the church. And he said, basically, I can't. He said, I cannot and I will not recant as God is my witness. And so... Um, after that, he was afraid for his life because think, the church was powerful. I mean, super powerful. And he actually was kidnapped and taken to this other city into this, and, and, and put in this castle called uh, the Wartburg. Now, the cool thing is, and I'm thinking, how's it cool, is he was kidnapped by his friends, which is awesome. And so everybody on the outside thought, okay, good, we finally got him. And he got kidnapped and disappeared. But his friends are like, okay, someone was going to, they were going to take you out. So we got you first. And so what did he do when he was there? He was, for, he was in the Wartburg for eight months. And in, in that time, he translated the New Testament into German. Awesome. That, to me, is unbelievable. So eight months, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll just knock this out real quick. And, in fact, he also wrote a lot of other stuff while he was there, too, which is fantastic. So, and, th and this, I mean, this is, what fueled, this is what fueled the Reformation. Why? Because people had the Bible. People had God's Word in their language. And when that happened, I mean, it was crazy. The people started teaching the Bible. 
And so they started having debates. And the people who would moderate the debates are like, well, what does the Bible say? Oh, Luther, they agree with you? Sorry, you're out of here. The next, you know, whoever's against you, they're out. And, and it happened, this happened all over Europe. Um, there was a guy, another guy we need to talk about real fast. His name is Ulrich Zwingli. Um, he was a guy in Switzerland. And um, he, same thing, He's, he, he realized that God's word is what's going to change people. So he, this is unbelievable to me. Um, he, one, he was, uh, he was uh, voted into this church. And on New Year's Day, he started preaching. And he started preaching in Matthew chapter 1 and started preaching through the Bible. And you hear testimonies from people in that time period. And they say this was, they, they said they, were, they hung on every word of Zwingli because he was preaching God's word. And this is something that wasn't happening in that society. You know, the pre, in the Catholic church, the priest would get up and he would either read a couple verses in Latin or he would get up and read some type of tradition or liturgical writing. And he would read it and then he would talk for a couple minutes and then they, would, and then they had all these like um, motions that they would go through. And, that was, and then they would tell them they were sanctified. But then when, when these people came along, when Luther came along, when Zwingli came along, they were really preaching the Bible and lives were being changed. And then um, the next guy, because Luther kind of, um, he lost a lot of, um, there were a couple different issues where he lost a lot of popular support. And so it seems like God brought another guy in onto the scene, um, a guy named John Calvin, who really was able to form a, the kind of the next generation um, of of uh, as a foundation for the Reformation, and he can, and Calvin was crazy. Calvin didn't want to be involved. He wanted to just go and study and read. And then he goes to the city, and the pastor in that city said, "May God condemn you if you try to seek you, to rest and to study while the re- work of the Reformation needs to be done." And so he said he was scared out of his mind. So he stayed there and started preaching in Geneva. And so he's in Geneva for a couple years preaching. And then, this is just a fun story. To me, this is a fun story. You might think, Zach, you're the biggest nerd ever. But to me, this is a really fun story. He gets kicked out of Geneva because the city council kind of had to decide, okay, are we going to be Protestant or are we going to be Catholic? And at this point, they're like, this is too controversial. Calvin, you're out of here. And so he leaves, and he's gone for about two and a half years. And then they realized we need to have him back. So they, they, they pull him back after he'd been kicked out, okay? Imagine this. What an awkward situation. You kick out your pastor, and then two and a half years later, you're like, oh, it was really better when you were here. Can you come back? And so he comes back. This is, to me, this is just awesome. And he gets up, and when he's getting, he's getting ready to preach, everybody's kind of like on pins and needles. They're like, what's he going to say? Is he going to ream us out because we kicked him out of the city? And he gets up there, doesn't mention anything about the fact that he got kicked out. He says, okay, the last time I was here, I was preaching out of this verse. Goes to the next verse and starts preaching again. I mean, how awesome is that? Because they realized that, that the church is going to be fed by the word of God. That the, the, the key factor that changed the church, that changed the world in the 1500s was the word of God. And so my challenge for you is that well, you need to realize that this word that God has given to you, I mean, that is this, the Bible in English is soaked in blood. People have fought and died so that you can have the Bible in a language that you understand, that this is God's word to you. And in reality, that we as the church, we need to have a Reformation mindset. We need to, we need to take everything that we hear, 
And we need to up, we need to compare it to the standard of God's word. I'll read this one thing that people talk about the uh, the uh, the onlys in the Reformation. Actually, they talk about the solas, but that's kind of a Latin word, and so I mean, we don't know Latin. But let me just kind of sum this up. Um, the reformers fought for the principles that Scripture alone is our final authority. Christ alone is the head of the church, and justification is by God's grace alone on the basis of the finished work of Christ received by faith alone. And, that, and these, when we, these, these things are the things that need to ground our understanding of everything that is being taught. It needs to ground everything that, of every tradition that we have in our lives, that we have in the church, and we're practicing. Whenever your church does anything, it needs to, it needs to come down, okay, is this based on Scripture alone, recognizing Christ alone, justification is by God's grace alone, based on the work of Christ, achieved by faith alone. So um, that's all I got for you. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll head out. Um, dear Gracious Father, thank you so much. We love you and we praise you. I, my, I, my prayer um, for all of us here is that you give us an amazing appreciation for your word and that we will love it so much that we will spend, we will, we will, we will want to get up early in the morning so that we can learn from you and your word, that we will, we will organize our day so that we can spend more time studying your word, learning what you have to say to us, memorizing your scriptures, meditating on your word. And I pray that, um, that we will have a deeper appreciation for the way that you have worked in human history so that you preserve your people, so that you are faithful to your covenant that you've made to us. God, I pray that you'll bless this week and continue to work in our lives, continue to make us more like Jesus and draw us closer to yourself. We pray these in Christ's name. Amen.